0: Listening
1: to AJK
2: Radio.
3: Good evening, America. This is uh, just, uh, <laughs> I will. <laughs> I will <laughs> <laughs>
4: Try that one more time, Sam. I
3: will get that out. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and our special contributing analyst, Lamont Banks, will be joining us shortly. Our phone number is 347 838 8976. 347 838 8976. How are you doing, Cliff? How are you doing, Lisa? Doing good. Hanging in there. All right. I know you guys. Hey, good evening. I am here already. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's talking in my head there. How you doing, Lamont?
0: Doing very well.
3: Awesome. Hey, uh, this evening, for our listeners, we have uh, several things we're going to be talking about, and we're going to ask you to call in and chime in on it. we got some subjects that I think should disturb you. Uh, some of the things we're going to talk about is suicides in the federal prisons, mis- uh, overall subject of miscarriage of justice, uh, how the uh, miscarriage of justice and the conditions in the prisons in the United States, the effects that it can have on inmates. Uh, is, you know, d- d- when you look at uh, the comparison of the conditions in the United mm-hmm. States compared to some of the other conditions uh, around the world, uh, we don't rank very high. I mean, we, we have no regard for people's rights, and uh, folks are just uh, mistreated. I mean, no, no other way to put it. They're mistreated. But later in the program, we're going to have a couple of uh, special guests joining us. Uh, one is going to be C. Ronald Huff, and uh, Mr. Huff is a professor professor emeritus uh, of criminology, law, and sociology. Uh, and uh, he is the dean. Uh, he served as the dean of School of of Social Ecology at the University of California, Irvine. So we look forward to that conversation. And then we also will have a little bit later joining us Donald S. Connery. And so we'll dive into those conversations a little bit later. Uh, Lisa, give us our uh, disclaimer.
4: Yeah, I just want to remind everybody that we are not attorneys, and a just cause coast-to-coast does not provide legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast-to-coast. And as always, thank you for tuning in and spending time with us this evening.
3: And, you know, as our listeners know, those who join us regularly, uh, one of the main things we talk about here on the program are the IRP-6, and we will continue to talk about the IRP-6. We invite you to go out to freetheirp6.org, or free 6org And uh, follow along with us as we talk about certain subjects. Uh, But the IRP6, we ask that you keep them in your prayers. And and as we continue to fight uh, for their freedom, we're talking about David Banks, Dave Zirpolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. Also, uh, if you'd like more information about A Just Cause, you can follow us and get information at www.a-justcause.com. And for archives of the programs, like the program you're going to hear tonight, you're going to hear some good stuff. So you'll probably want to go back and listen to it. That can be found at AJCRadio.com. You can also tune in to Live365.com for 24 by 7 AJC programming. We ask that you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Cliff, I know uh, let's jump to uh, one of the articles that we have pulled uh, for our discussion to get things started tonight. What, what is that article about?
1: Yeah, we have this article um – written in the uh oh which I was going to read the name but I think it's the Atlantic and this article is by Ashley Portero it was written in August of 2012 but it still rings true to this day it is titled prison chief Penn's memo urging in- inmates not to commit suicide the this article this article on so many levels is just totally totally sickening uh, it starts off by saying, following the highly publicized suicide of a, a mentally ill inmate at the U.S. Penitentiary Administrative Maximum, or ADX, in Florence, Colorado, so that's where the IRP-6 are, the Federal Bureau of Prisons sent a suicide prevention memo to all prisoners in federal lockups to encourage them not to lose hope. Uh, the memo was uncovered by the Atlantic's Andrew Cohen. He's been reporting on a lawsuit challenging solitary confinement and mental healthcare in the prison sufil- facility, uh, this inmate, Jose Martin Vega, he hanged himself in his cell after alleged- allegedly facing cruel and unusual punishment by prison officials who also failed to provide adequate treat- adequate treatment for the prisoner's paranoid schizophrenia. And so then the director of uh, BOP, Charles E. Samuels Jr., he sends out a uh, uh, a note, a letter, whatever you want to call it, Urging struggling inmates to seek help from prison staff if they uh, experience suicidal thoughts. Here's basically the crux of his memo. It says, at times you may feel hopeless about your future and your thoughts may turn to suicide. If you're unable to think of solutions other than suicide, it's not because solutions do not exist. Really, director? It is because you are currently unable to see them, Samuels wrote. Do not lose hope. Solutions can be found, feelings change, and anticipated positive events occur. Look for meaning and purpose in educational and treatment programs, faith, work, family, and friends.
3: Uh, well, Cliff, they got to have those kind of programs, first, Exactly. Right?
1: I mean, this is, this is totally sick. And then another thing that uh, Andrew Cohen uh, of the Atlantic points out, he says, uh, Cohen points out that the June lawsuit known as Bacot versus Federal Bureau of Prisons alleges that there are only two mental mental health professionals responsible for the care of 450 prisoners at ADX Florence. With such a ra- ratio, it's ridiculous to think that even those inmates who want to accept Director Samuels' kind invitation are going to be successful in hoping to do so he also described the state of some of the prisoners who presumably received the memo which included one man who has wow (laughs) this is crazy so it includes one man who's cut off his scrotum and a testicle and amputated some of his fingers another who allegedly crawls around adx florence on one leg because prison officials have refused to replace his prosthetic leg. And another who tried to commit suicide in 2008 and was promptly returned to the cell in which he had made the attempt, a cell which was still covered in his own blood. And then so how does Director Samuel say, you know, turn to some programs, turn to help, have positive thoughts? There are no, you're talking about ADX. This is the administrative maximum. There is no hope. You give a man three life sentences and then write him a memo and say, don't lose hope. You know, you you, you, you something and, and his little sick point that says uh, unanticipated positive events occur. Where? When? How? When you're locked up in in federal prison in ADX in maximum security. Twenty three hours. Yeah. 23 and
3: a half half.
1: 23, Twenty three hours. Yeah. Up. And. Don't lose hope. Some some unexpected positive event is going to show up. I haven't seen or heard of any unexpected positive events happening down at uh, Florence, Colorado. This is a totally sick. Don't lose hope. You lock me up. You give me a ridiculous sentence and then tell me if you're thinking about suicide, if you're if you're thinking about getting out of your situation where you're being abused by the system where your uh, basically your accommodations, your your living conditions are horrible. They take you back to a cell and put you in there where your blood is all over the floor where you tried to commit suicide. You're like, okay, well, we're going to discipline you. Don't be trying to commit suicide. So we discipline you, then put you back in your cell until you don't lose hope.
4: But these, these people are insane. They want to tell you uh, that you should not lose faith, you should have hope, all that kind of stuff they take away your hope yes they treat these people as if they're not human and then you say hold on to hope hold on to what hope one of the irp six uh had talked about uh some time back about lying in bed in the middle of the night and uh a guard coming through and kicking him just for no reason just because he could while he's laying there sleeping they're not treated like they're human Trying they're not
3: antagonizing
4: yeah they just they want They want to bother these people. They want to antagonize them. They want to cause problems for them. They don't want them to have hope. That's a bunch of crap.
3: Well, and, and, you know, on that subject, when you think about uh, the different levels of prison, and you you got the camp, you got the the minimum, you got the medium, you got the maximum, and then you got supermax. And, you know, even at, at Florence, when you hear of the stories at the prison camp, And, you know, some of the guys who are who are at that camp have been to other camps and they say, you know, that Florence is not a camp or the the quote camp at Florence is not a camp uh, that it may as well be on the level of a of a minimum or a medium the way they treat them. And it brings back to memory, you know, uh, one of the administrators that was there uh, by the name of of Griggs. And if you recall, you know, Griggs made uh, he tried to just talk about antagonizing folks. He made a comment when IRP6 first got there, uh, something to the effect that I knew you guys were going to be troubled as soon as I heard you were coming here. And it, it's then like, how do you know that? And what does that mean? I mean, if, if anybody was creating troubles, it was Mr. Griggs. I mean, exactly. that's why a just cause had to send letters to the warden, send letters to the Bureau of Prisons uh, explaining some of, the, some of the antics of Mr. Griggs.
1: Yeah, we actually had to go to D.C. because you know he was in there. He's abusing inmates, and when we questioned him and say, "Hey, based off the rules of the BOP rules and uh, of, of standard procedure, this you're violating the rule. Why is it that you're doing these things? And BOP rules say that you're not supposed to. to? And what does he say?" Well you gotta take it up take it up with Washington. Call them. So, you know, uh, just calls jumped on the plane, said we'll take it up with Washington. We have been sending uh complaints, sending all kind of letters saying, Hey, what is going on with the uh, camp administrator? What was his first name? Donald. Donald Griggs. What yeah. is going on with him and why is it that he's getting away with this stuff? So, you know, we went out there, presented our letters and uh actually um Director, I think it was Director Samuels, gave a call to the warden down there like, what are you guys doing down in Florence, Colorado? So, you know, uh, his his letter was a little bit insane talking about hold on the hope to men who are locked up for, you know, three life sentences. But at least in that situation, he did reach out, and, uh, you know, now Mr. Griggs is no longer employed at, uh, you know, uh, Florence, that he's no longer the camp administrator. They did get rid of him because he was slightly insane with the way that he was running things down
3: there. Well, and, you know, Cliff, uh, I I know, like you said, that article was from a couple of years ago, but, you know, the Bureau of of Justice Statistics actually did, they they sometimes track numbers and, you know, you have to question and take it with a grain of salt, some of the things they say, but... Uh, around that same time period, uh, they shared some numbers that and, and an article was published on NBCNews.com News dot com at that around that time that said suicides kill more inmates than homicide overdoses and accidents combined. Wow. And the uh, Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics said that one hundred and eighty five inmates took their own lives in state and federal prisons around that time period. And so, you know, it. Is there something that needs to be done about that? Absolutely, absolutely. And but like you said, as far as the memo saying, you know, hey, get involved in something. You know, uh, do something to to keep your spirits up. Are you kidding? I mean, you got well, people. I'm Go sorry. ahead, Lamont. Go ahead, Lamont. I didn't mean to
0: interrupt you, Sam. Here's the problem that you have. Um, <clears throat> the the issue. As Cliff was referencing, the people uh, that have lost hope that are looking at three life sentences and the memo to come out saying, please refrain from doing this. Here's the the insanity of all of this. You send me a memo, which is not personal, telling me not to lose hope and please don't take my life, and at the same time give no incentive to give me a reason to continue to live. You understand what I'm saying? There is no incentive in these prisons. It's not only – Uh, Florence, you're talking about people that have four to six years are trying to take their life because of the horrific conditions in these prisons. So you're not talking about somebody that's just doing life. That's how dire the environment is in the the United States prisons across this country. If I'm looking at four to six years or seven to ten years, and I am contemplating taking my life, there is a serious problem in the conditions in which you put these men in and in, and when, not only men women uh you got youth youth uh prisons across this country that that are, are 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 set up for the youth which i have done research on those items as well where young people are attempting to take their lives at 14 and 15 and 6 years old so the foundation of this starts all the way down to the to the juvenile facilities, all the way up. And so what you have in a nutshell, you have no incentive other than treating these people like animals. I lived it myself. I went through it for seven years. I saw the abuse. I saw the, the downright cruelty, not only done to myself, done to others that were there, uh, people coming in with razor blade cuts all the way up their arms, People putting feces on themselves in the holding cell because they do not want to continue to be in a facility that is at that level of cruelty. And we sit here in this country and act like oh well, it's, it's not that bad. Well you know they shouldn't have done, they did this so it, it doesn't matter how they're treated. That is insanity on its highest level.
1: It's the nope. sickest
0: thing I've ever heard.
1: And and then I mean the, the whole judicial system is it's I mean there's like there's not really words for it because you can call it broken but it doesn't do justice on the things that are wrong with it. Just like we talked about the appellate process the uh on Tuesday night. The appellate process is set in place to affirm what the what the lower court did. So basically you get convicted in court. The appellate process is not there to say okay we are going out of our way to find out what happened wrong we're going we're digging deep to find out how we can take any type of uh due process violation any type of constitutional violation any type of way that any of your rights were violated the the appellate court is not there for that the appellate court is there to say we are going to go out of our way to make sure that the the decision where you got convicted, we have to make sure that that stays in place, and that is where the hopelessness comes in. You're convicted, you get a life sentence, or even like you said, Lamont, you get you get five, ten years, and you're already people who are in the system. They come to the realization, you know what? The appellate process is a joke. It's not here for me. It's not going to serve me this is all about trying to keep me locked up in prison. And that is totally sickening when you think about it. Well, they and, laughed at
0: me. They laughed at me when I told them I was appealing my case. They laughed.
4: I bet they I did. I had
0: inmates tell me, man, are you serious? He said, man, don't waste your time doing that, man. And then I, In Colorado? He said, man, that's an overturn your case. It's a joke.
4: And I know uh, that one of the IRP6, Gary Walker, uh, when their appeal was uh, was denied, he said that he felt like someone had kicked him in the chest when he found out that the appeal was denied. And but what he did, de- what he obviously didn't understand was that the appellate court is not there for the people. The appellate court is not there for the people who have been wrongfully convicted. That's not what it, that's not their purpose. Their purpose is just to be there and uphold what the lower court did. That's all they're there for. That was their purpose in being put in place.
1: That's right. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned Gary Walker. He has pretty much fallen into this state of depression because he was, uh, you know, disillusioned with the system that the system he's thinking is going to give him some type of remedy. That is not what is there about. And, and we didn't understand it either. Yeah. We thought that the appellate court is going to look for a way to ensure that your rights were were uh were upheld, to ensure there was no violation it's the total opposite and so like you said lisa he felt like i've been kicked in the chest with this decision that's come through and now what do i do what type of uh what type of um remedy do i have now what exactly is going on with me what can i do to uh you know to to have my my situation rimmed. And um he's in a very, very deep state of depression right now.
3: Yeah. And and um when you look at and and, you know we were talking about other conditions there in Florence as well. And you know when you look at how they are treated and when you have someone who has never ever, you know, committed a crime, never ever been involved in the in the uh, uh, judicial process uh and and the extent that you know, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch went through, uh, uh, and and John Walsh, his boss, uh, the other Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunila Hazra, that whole ordeal, you know, is a strain on anybody. Not just the not just the guys who went through it, but their families and everything. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back. We got callers who are waiting in the queue. Uh, please be patient. We're going to take our take some calls when we when we come back. Uh, but we do have to take this quick break. The Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. We'll be right back.
2: Every crime has a victim, and every victim needs help. Being violated by a crime can leave you feeling alone in the world. National Center for Victims of Crime can help. Let us be your resource, your support, your guide to rebuilding your life and restoring hope. Yes, you have the ability to recover. Take the first step. Call 1-800-FYI-CALL or visit us at www.ncvc.org.
3: Talk, news, Talk, politics, news, and inspiration.
1: So stupid, so stupid, stupid, stupid God. God. God.
5: These are the voices that prisoners in solitary confinement hear every day. Out of Arizona's total of 2,076 prisoners held in solitary, 30% are taking prescription medication to deal with mental illnesses and 11% have diagnosed schizophrenia. Experts report that the extreme and prolonged isolation exasperates pre-existing conditions and appears to even cause mental illness in prisoners who were not previously ill. While prisoners deserve punishment, Arizona can do better. We need to change the solitary confinement rules. Unlike any other states, Arizona prisoners are held in 8 by 10 cells for at least 23 hours a day with no windows and virtually no human interaction. Perhaps the best way to fix solitary confinement so it strikes a balance between punishment and humanity is to decrease the size of solitary units. Colorado, Texas, Mississippi, and Illinois have decreased the size of their units, only admitting prisoners who need the rehabilitating experience and have saved over $6 million without compromising prison safety. A study produced in Colorado reported that after decreasing the number of solitary units, prisoners experienced an improvement in overall mental health of the confined inmate population. How can we do this? We need to reach out to Director of Corrections Charles L. Ryan, asking him to decrease the number of solitary units. Solitary confinement needs to remain a place for punishment and behavior change, but it can also be a place of innovation and rebuilding.
2: The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on Adjust Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of Adjust Cause or Adjust Cause Coast to Coast.
3: Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and joining us by phone, our special contributing analyst, Lamont Banks. So we're talking about uh, the conditions in prison and and, uh, a memo that uh, Director Samuels at the federal uh, BOP had published uh, a while back. But like you say, Cliff, it's still relevant today and you talk about the conditions uh, that exist in the federal in the federal as well as state prison systems. Lamont was talking about this uh the conditions that exist in the state prison systems. And uh so uh w- before going to the break, we had some callers in the queue. So are you ready to go to the first yep. caller there, Cliff?
1: Yes, we will go to. We got uh Danny in California. You have a question or a comment? Uh
2: yes, I do. My name is Danny Salado and I'm in California. We were at, my brother Andy and I were at the Florence camp last week to visit our brother Ron. Mm-hmm. The reason he's there is a topic of a whole other su- subject. But anyway, when my brother Ron got there two years ago, he was as healthy as anybody on this planet. He, he worked out an awful lot. He ran. He was in very, very good shape. Currently, uh, in July, Ron was hit by a forklift in the Unicorn where they had dispatched him to work. And right now we went and visited him. He is in a wheelchair. He cannot walk. He has a broken back. He uh, He's disoriented. Uh, it gets even worse. His blood pressure right now is right around 180 or 190 over 120 or 130. He's uh, on the verge of having a stroke. We went and saw him in a wheelchair. He could not walk in a full back brace and a neck brace. He informed us that he is getting no medication whatsoever. Even though we've contacted the prison and they said, oh, no, no, we're giving him this, 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 and this. Uh, the truth is, every time he goes to get medication, they say, gee, we're sorry, we have no medication for you. Now, here is what happened. what's happened since July when he got hit with a forklift. We have no idea what the prison medication they have been giving him, but mm-hmm. now he's having massive seizures. And the seizures, that's that's part of the reason, his hip is black from one end to the other. When he goes to the bathroom, he has to wear a mouthpiece because as soon as he sits down, he has a seizure, he can crack his head open. He was disoriented, couldn't even recognize the building that he sleeps in every single night. The next day, uh, which was Sunday, we visited him on Friday evening. He had to leave early because he was getting ill Sunday we were there to see him at 8 o'clock in the morning. At 8.20 we'd finished the paperwork and were waiting, and we were informed he had had a very bad night, vomiting all night long, and they were trying to get a hold of the Florence medics, the doctors. This is at at 20 minutes after 8 when we were told this. The doctors never showed up until 9.30, and when they did, uh, it was probably quarter after 10, the EMT who assisted in the examination of our brother said we believe he has had a stroke and we are going to transport him to the hospital because we believe that he needs immediate medical attention now this what happens next is just absolutely unbelievable and thank goodness that the dust cause people were in there and they witnessed every single minute of this right along with my brother and he had this horrific situation what happens next this is quarter after 10 they tell us The EMT tells us, if you wait right here, you can see him as he comes through. You can say, hi, Ron, we're here, blah, blah, blah. If you wait right here, you'll be able to see him when we bring him through for transport. All of a sudden, we go from quarter after 10 till about 11 o'clock, and we see they're bringing Ron up in a wheelchair, and he looks completely incoherent. They stop outside the door, and he sits there for 15 minutes. Now, we're inside the room waiting to see him. We watch (laughs) him on the other side of the door. They turn around after 15 minutes, and they take him back to his cell. Then we are told at 1130, I'm sorry, we cannot transport your brother while you are on the premises. This is a security risk. Now, you have to understand this all starts at 815 this morning. And now it is 1130, and we're told they can't transport him anywhere while we are on on the premises. So my brother Randy and I get in the car, and we leave immediately, knowing that Ron has to have – he's had a stroke. He right. has to have immediate tension. Well, then what happens is after we leave, thank goodness the just because people were paying attention to what happened, they actually bring him up at 10 minutes, to, 10 minutes to 1. We leave at 11.30. At 10 minutes to 1, they bring him back up, and they take him to the Admax. He is not transported. He has left at the AdMax facility until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they put him in a car, and they take him to uh, wherever they took him. He was back in his cell early evening, and they did absolutely nothing for him. Uh, he spent the next three days, almost four days, in his bunk, unable to get out of bed, unable to wake up, just comatose. His fellow inmates were 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 raising all kinds of ruckus, trying to get him some help. Nobody wow. would bother to even hey, check on him.
3: Hey, hey Danny, uh, quick question, yes. and, and we're we're going to have to go to some other callers real quick, and and, sure. and I know some of the folks from A Just Cause they did make us aware of that uh, situation. Sure. So you know we're glad you were able to call in and share that with our listeners. And uh, sure. just real quick, uh, and then we we have to move on. But but how how sure. is your brother doing? How's your brother doing now? Have you gotten any kind the of update? But-
2: well, the latest—the latest we were informed was he did—he did get up. He sat up in his bed two days ago, and some of his fellow so inmates brought him something to eat, and he did get something to eat. And we are waiting okay. on a report tonight to see how he's doing. He hasn't left his bunk yet, but he is—he apparently he has—he is coming out of it slowly.
3: Okay, so Danny, what we'll do—keep uh, in contact with the Just Cause, and, and you know uh, we want to continue to follow that. Because uh, you know when we when we got reports of that, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago uh, when when uh, yeah. folks who who were there visiting at the at uh, Florence and when they came back and they were saying you won't believe what just happened. And so when we heard that, it was that, an
2: atrocity. It, it was yes. unbelievable. It was an atrocity.
3: Absolutely. Yes. So we want to be sure yeah. that you uh, keep us informed of that, and we're going to stay on top of it. So uh, so Danny, uh, we appreciate the call. And, uh, Cliff, who, who else do we have there? Uh, we have Lawana. Thank Luana. you very
6: much for what you
2: folks do.
3: Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Danny.
2: No, you betcha. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Okay, and we have uh, lawana and Clue. lawana and Q, you have a, a question or a comment?
3: lawana well, are you there? I expect
7: somebody to have hope, even more so, When you have been accused of something you did not do, have never done anything wrong, and you have the audacity, the nerve to say, have hope. Put you in there and let's see how much hope you have. There is nothing to have hope for. I'm being abused. I'm being mistreated. This is a shame that this poor man. And then they said they sent him, gave him something to eat. I wonder what they gave him to eat. It ain't, it probably was some expired filth, because that's all we hear about and that dump is about expired food. That's no good. They don't feed. These are grown men who get no decent meals and no food. You won't give a man that weighs from, from, well, I don't know what men weigh for the most part. I mean, if it's 185 to 250 to 300 pounds, whatever, you give them a piece of dried up, nasty, filthy, a a piece of day day old or week old cake a, a piece. And you expect a man to sustain himself with that. This, this is this, and I was there that day that 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 happened to this this woman that just was on the phone. I was there, and and this man everybody was talking about. They said that man had a stroke. He's been, hey now where you get where does it come in that you uh uh we can't bring him out because it's a security risk. You a security risk lie. You just didn't want to take that man. They don't care about these people. They treat them like dogs, worse than dogs. Worse than any animal on the planet. They'll put you in prison if you mistreat an animal, but you're going to treat people like dirt, like they're not human beings? I don't care what they did to rehabilitate or make them better. You're making the situation worse, not better. You're making it worse. If I can find a person when God made us uh, to need light and love and and, and 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 be able to interact with human beings, and you take them away from that, you expect them to get better? This is sick. And I, cause I was unjustly accused in prison for six months, and those people treated those ladies like they didn't care. There was women sick all the time that they didn't care. They don't care about your physical dental, anything. The girls wouldn't even want to get teeth pulled. You you get a tooth pulled in there. You are in trouble. These people, this is a bunch of crap. And something has got to be done about it. I am very, very upset about it. This is, well, these you people you, are inhumane you, in you this you country. They know. have no kind of sense. They have no feeling. They have no conscience. They're just evil. I want to do as much dirt to a human being as I can do, and God's going to judge them for it. Thank you for your time.
3: All right. Thank you, Luana. And, and uh, you know, we, like I said, we, we heard a lot of, uh, of things about that situation on that day. Uh, do we have another caller? Yes,
1: we uh, we have Ethel on the line. You have a question or comment?
3: Did we lose Ethel? All right. Do we have another one? Go to the next one, please. Michael, you're on the line.
0: Yes, I just want to talk about the unjust system of a lot of guys being locked up in prisons for some they didn't do. But then they find out, then when they release them, they're only given some chunk change. But the life of those people has been taken. So how do we stop that?
3: Well, you know, Michael, that's one of the things that uh, a just cause, that's what a just cause, one of the uh, agenda items for a just cause is to fight for that kind of thing. We we talk about that from time to time on the program, that you can have someone who actually committed a crime, and once they're released, they have various programs, social programs uh, that help to re-indoctrinate them into society. Uh, unfortunately, when you have someone that is wrongfully convicted, then uh, they are released, And there's nothing for them, and they actually have to sue the state or sue the federal government or sue whoever to get some sort of restitution for the many years that they have lost sitting in prison for something that they did not do. And we've heard uh, from some of our uh, uh, guests that we've had on the program who were wrongfully convicted, and and some of them were in for life sentences, and they said that the attitude – that was prevailing within the prison system was that you're in here for life so why are we going to expend any energy as far as giving you any uh education programs any any type of uh trade uh uh education or anything like that even while you're in the system so then once you're exonerated and you're proven that you didn't do anything and you get out you don't even have the skills so, you know, Michael, that is something that we are fighting for, and it's going to take people like you and others like you who are interested and care about this kind of thing to get on board and get involved in local organizations there, or contact the Just Cause at contact at a Just Cause and ask how you can get involved. Uh, let's go to our first guest. Uh, we have C. Ronald Huff joining us. And uh, Mr. Huff has an extended background uh, in law enforcement and and, uh, and a great understanding of uh the uh, the justice system and miscarriage of justice and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Welcome to the program Mr. Huff. How you doing?
6: Uh just fine. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening.
3: Yeah, so uh as you can see the the uh momentum has picked up even before you joined. Uh so give us a little bit of uh, uh information on your background and I know you've written several books on wrongful convictions and miscarriage of justice. Uh you got uh, hundreds of articles that you've written. Uh, you just finished writing an article and co-written one with uh, Jim and Nancy Petro who we've had on the program before. So give us a little bit give our listeners a little bit of background and then let's you know let's kind of uh, jump into this conversation about miscarriage of justice.
6: Oh, sure. I'll be brief. Um, you know, I um before my academic career, I actually worked in a maximum security institution back in Ohio for mentally disturbed criminals. And so um that's how I originally got into criminology and then I got my PhD at Ohio State and Sociology with a specialization in criminology, and I started out doing research on corrections and later gangs. And then, since the 1980s, I've been doing research almost exclusively on wrongful conviction. And more recent years, concentrating on also comparing the United States errors that we make with uh, other countries, uh, Canada and uh, much of Europe, to see how we can learn from each other. We actually had a had a conference in Washington after uh, President Obama took office. Um, where we uh, brought in people from different continents to talk about these errors and try to figure out how we can reduce these errors. But as you know, we still make far too many of these errors, and it affects people's lives. As some of your callers have been have been discussing, it's a real tragedy for people. And thing the public don't often don't understand is every time we
3: get the wrong person, the real offender is still out there committing crimes. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely the truth. Now, I want to uh, jump back to a little bit of uh, uh, when you said at the beginning of your career, and, and hopefully you can shed a little bit of light on this because during the break, Cliff and I and Lisa, we were talking about uh, uh, Florence, Colorado, and the gentleman down there in Supermax, uh, his name is Jim Powell, or Jack Powers, and that was the guy that Cliff was talking about who mm-hmm. had uh, cut off his his, uh, his scrotum, had, uh, had uh, amputated his fingers and all that kind of stuff. Now I was reading a little bit about Mr. Powers. When he first got into the system, he was convicted of robbery, got sentenced to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. He witnessed the murder of another man in prison. And because he tried to help him, he got on the hit list, so to speak, of the of the Aryan Brotherhood. So they shipped him around from prison to prison uh, under protective watch, so to speak. He ended up in Florence, under the maximum security. And they say that before all of that started happening, this man had no signs of mental illness. He had no tattoos. If you see pictures of him now, he has tattoos all over his body. Body parts are missing and that type of thing. So, Mr. Huff, what would drive a person to do this when they they first went in? They say there were no signs at all of mental illness uh, for this man. Well, um...
6: People have different reactions to prison, and people are treated differently depending on the offenses that they're allegedly committed, some of whom we know were not offenses because they were wrongfully convicted. But imagine being in prison for something you didn't do. Uh, You know the famous case of Randall Dale Adams uh, that resulted in that wonderful movie, The Thin Blue Line. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just showed that in my class today. I teach 110 students uh, every fall in a course called Miscarriages of Justice. And uh, that case occurred uh, you know, a long time ago, and I got to know Randall Dale Adams quite, a, quite well because I was at Ohio State at the time, and he was from uh, just outside Columbus, Ohio. I had him lecture at Ohio State, had him talk about what it was like. Now imagine, and you say, what can this do to people? Here's a guy who didn't have any criminal record in this case, Uh, He was white. Many of these folks are are African-American or minorities. He happened to be a white guy. Um, He always grew up respecting law enforcement. had a relative that was an Ohio State Patrol officer, and he never liked criminals. Now he's in prison in Texas for killing a Dallas cop, but he didn't do it. And he said, all the time I was in prison, a lot of the other prisoners thought I was a hero because I killed a cop. The guards hated me because they thought I killed a cop. And it was a, a surreal experience for him. Uh, so, you know, we've had people in prison who uh, also were wrongfully convicted who were thought to be child molesters. Well, some of them had boiling water poured on them. Some of them were attacked by other inmates. As you know, in a, in a prison institution like where I used to work when I was uh, when I was a younger fellow, um, the lowest on the totem pole are um, the child molesters and second are the rapists. And the reason why is it's a real man's world and those guys are not looked at as real men. If you attack a child or a woman, you're not going to be respected by the other inmates, and they'll get at you, they'll hurt you if they can. So a lot of things happen, and uh, people get into different situations where it can change their entire lives. A lot of them come out with PTSD. Um, you The know, best study was done in, in England by Adrian Grounds. He started out, he wasn't really prepared to find very much, but when he got done interviewing people, that had been wrongfully convicted, he determined that they were a lot like people that had survived natural disasters or had been uh, uh, involved in being victimized by terrorism and other things like that. Being in prison had just as much of a bad toll on them, and they had just as much PTSD as uh, somebody coming back from battles in the war.
3: Wow. So now if we can shift to the discussion uh, as far as you were saying uh, comparing the Conditions in the prisons uh, of the United States to some of the other countries, and um, and and you were saying to y'all this, that during some of those conferences there was discussion of errors. Now you know, and, and I'm gonna, I'm going to kind of mix it up just a little bit here from the standpoint of you now the definition of an error is a mistake or an inaccuracy or a miscalculation or a blunder or an oversight. Mm-hmm. Now we know that there are cases, uh, and you know the percentages are out there. We'll pull them up here in a moment but there a, a great number of percentages of uh, wrongful convictions are, are calculated. I mean, it's not a miscalculation. They are calculated on the part of either an investigator or a prosecutor. So when we look at compared to other countries, I mean, did, did the conferences get into those kind of discussions as well as to the motives behind some of these types of problems that exist?
6: Well, absolutely, and you're quite right. When you look at the um, the National Registry of Exonerations, for example, with over 1,300 uh, or 1,400 uh, exonerations, that includes DNA-based, non-DNA-based. Uh, you also find that there are exonerations that, in cases where crimes were alleged that never even occurred. And so uh, when you look at the different, uh, different countries around the world, and I've looked a lot at many European countries, uh, for one thing <clears> – <throat> Uh, they don't have the adversarial system outside of England. They have the Continental Inquisitorial System. Without going into a lot of detail, the difference is they're focused on a search for the truth, whereas in the United States our system, our adversarial system, assumes that the prosecution will go all out to prove, uh, you know, some of the prosecutors forget that their job is to pursue justice and they think their job is to pursue convictions, and that's not their job. In fact, that's unethical for them to take that approach. Nonetheless, in the adversarial system, that pits the prosecution against the defense. The fallacy in that system is that you assume the truth will emerge when, in fact, the resources are greatly disproportionate. The Public defenders in America are greatly overworked and under-resourced. Prosecutors usually have more resources at their disposal. And the defense attorneys are often dependent on the police investigation to find out what happened. In Europe, in most of Europe, and and the ones I've studied, uh, European nations that have the Continental Inquisitorial System, um, everybody's supposed to be searching for the truth. So, for example, the defense attorney can say that he rejects the prosecution's theory of the case, and he offers instead a different theory, and the police have to go out and investigate that theory. Uh, So everybody's supposed to be coming together to find the truth, and prosecutors over there are not, uh, generally are not in most of the areas there, are not... Elected. So the, that takes the politics out of the system. Where in the United States, most prosecutors, <clears throat> as you know, are elected, and um, a lot of the prosecutions become politically motivated. So we have uh, too many unethical prosecutors. Uh, the recent papers that Jim Petro and Nancy and I have been writing, uh, some of which we've titled Prosecutorial Injustice, uh, talk about the uh, uh, hopefully small percentage, but nonetheless seems to be growing. In terms of our awareness of what we call the rogue prosecutors, and the rogue prosecutors go about their job very differently, and they they are very unethical. They conceal exculpatory evidence from the the defense that they're required by law to turn over. And we see, and now at the National Center for Prosecutor Integrity, with which you're familiar, we find more and more documentation about this. And the sad part is, virtually nothing happens to these these people. These prosecutors who are unethical. Usually they don't get disbarred. They don't have uh, disciplinary action. And even when the courts discover this this kind of behavior, they generally rule um, they uphold the conviction and they rule that it was harmless error that it wouldn't have made any difference in the outcome.
1: And that is what you know we we've we've looked at that um, that issue that you're talking about right there. We looked at that quite a few times. And the thing that really gets you is that how how is it? in 2014 there there have been studies i mean uh you just laid out how you've looked at it i'm sure other uh law professors have looked at it other criminology professors have looked at it how is it that we ha- there has not become an amendment to the you know the constitutional <laughs> amendment that gave these prosecutors this uh you know this just blanket immunity because that's where the problem is if if you had prosecutors that were subjected to the same type of, um, you know, incarceration, the same type of uh, penalties for uh, for if they if they get someone and they say they perjured themselves on the stand. Well, if you find a prosecutor that knowingly, blatantly and purposely uh, commits misconduct, if that prosecutor were uh, prosecuted themselves and told that, hey, you if you bring some false evidence in you lie on the stand or uh, you get a a witness to lie on the stand, then you're going to be prosecuted for your misconduct. Then it would totally, totally change the, uh, the outlook and the paradigm on how the American justice system is laid out. Because you say, just like you say, right now prosecutors are saying I'm not I don't care about justice it means absolutely nothing to me i have a political agenda i need to maintain uh my job i need to maintain my 98 99% conviction ratio and if that means that i can fabricate evidence get innocent people in jail then that's the route that i will take and i think the the thing that uh gets me the most is that um, even something as simple as a DNA case. When there's DNA that's found to say, Hey, this person that you have locked up is not the perpetrator, we have another person's DNA, they still fight to say, No, we want to keep them in jail if it's on a if it's on a technicality or whatever, we don't even want to have the DNA tested. Where is the justice? And if a prosecutor mm-hmm. takes that role and the public doesn't fight him on it or her, then how do we, the people, ever receive justice from what we have uh, blindly put in place?
6: Well, I agree with you completely, and let me just make a couple brief comments. One is you say these prosecutors might have a 98% conviction rate. The public needs to remember they start out with more than 90% through plea bargaining. And in most of Europe that doesn't happen. You don't have plea bargaining uh, except in cases where the possible sentence is less than a year, considered minor cases if you if you look at Europe what we call felonies they don't do plea bargaining Uh, so we have the uh, the ability to leverage defendants often whom are poor and uh, undereducated and may have mental problems they may be young people who are easily led they end up engaging in plea bargains without a lot of times without good legal advice and that just uh, is not as common in Europe Um, So, first of all, um, they start out with over 90% through plea bargains, and then, um, you know, to beyond that, let me just say in this last paper I wrote with the Petros, uh, to go back to what you just said, I took it a step further. I said, okay, in criminal prosecutions, we have a Latin phrase, mens rea, which basically means intent. We have to prove intent to commit the act. okay. What about a prosecutor who intentionally withholds exculpatory evidence from the defense? Is that not intent? Of course it is. Secondly, in the criminal justice system, we believe in deterrence. We think that we have to punish people to deter them and others from committing crime. Well, what kind of deterrence do we have for these rogue prosecutors? Virtually none. They have immunity. It's almost total. They don't have immunity, by the way. There is is an exception. If they get outside their role of a prosecutor and they go out and investigate, uh, they don't have the same immunity. But basically they have blanket immunity, and nothing happens to them. How is that going to be deterrence? It's not going to be. That's exactly what you just said. Well, what's going to happen to change this if we don't start being serious? And so the Petros and I have talked about, you know, start out, if they they do this knowingly, the least that happens to them is disbarment. They never practice law the rest of their lives. And then they should be liable for criminal or civil penalties uh, for doing this kind of behavior. And I believe, like you said, that would get their attention um, and uh, I think it could change their behavior. The reason that they still have immunity is the argument is, well, you couldn't get anybody to be a prosecutor if you didn't give them immunity. They have to have that protection to do what they think is the best thing to do. Well, what they're supposed to do is pursue justice, not just convictions. And they should do so in a very fair, a fair way, instead of uh, using tunnel vision, where they take the police report, um, you know, as uh, as totally correct. It may not be correct. We have some uh, um, some percentage of police officers who are uh, not ethical, who commit perjury, who throw down weapons, who plant weapons. In the Rampart scandal out here in California, uh, later made into a movie called Rampart. Uh, When Officer Perez testified on the stand, he said, yeah, what we did is we planted evidence and we committed perjury because we had pressure from people above us to to deal with the crime problem. The Rampart Division's crime rate was very high, and they would come to roll call and say, you guys do something about it. So we thought it was us versus them, and we started committing perjury and planting weapons, uh, planting evidence. And so on the stand, uh, under oath, he admitted all this stuff, and it led to a tremendous scandal in the... Los Angeles Police Department. Uh and it's happened elsewhere around the country, so it's very regrettable.
3: And you know, Dr. Huff, when you mentioned that uh you know, a lot of folks say, well, if they didn't if the prosecutors didn't have some sort of immunity, then you wouldn't get uh good folks and they wouldn't be able to do what they need to do and so forth and so on. And and you know, I have to point to uh District Attorney uh uh Watkins uh down in Dallas County, you know, yes. where he has the, you know, he he has has made some great strides with the Integrity Unit down there and is a model for other uh, 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 offices around the nation. And so, you know, folks I have just to look at that. I just talked about say, that in class
6: today, by the way. I just told oh, my you? students about it. Look what's happened in
3: Dallas. Dallas,
6: when Randall Adams was convicted, the DA down there, Henry Wade, who the audience will recognize in the case Roe versus Wade, the abortion case, Henry Wade's office was so corrupt and involved in so many wrongful convictions that the American Bar Association's own criminal justice magazine front page, the the cover story one month, said Dallas DA's office win at all costs. Doug Mulder, who prosecuted Adams, was undefeated, and he and some others were uh, heard to say in front of witnesses, uh, any prosecutor can convict a guilty man. It takes a really good prosecutor to convict an innocent man. Wow. What a chilling statement. That's a chilling statement. So now fast forward. And Randall Adams, by the way, never got a dime from Texas. I knew him. I knew his family. They never apologized to him. They claimed sovereign immunity. They never paid him a dime. Fast forward today. Craig Watkins comes in, the first African-American elected district attorney in Dallas, starts, as you just said, the Conviction Integrity Unit, finds a lot of – because fortunately there was a lot of biological evidence that was still around to be tested – and he found some cases that it resulted in wrongful conviction, quite a few. Also look at Texas today, compensation. Randall got nothing. Randall Adams got nothing. Today, the statute says $85,000 for every year of wrongful imprisonment with no maximum. It's the highest maximum limit in America. So things are turning around, and there are some folks in Texas that realize that they had become kind of the wrongful conviction capital of America.
1: And that's the thing. If you if if they don't put a cap on how much a wrongfully convicted person can get once they get out of prison, then it'll get the public to say, hey, you know what? We need to deal with these prosecutors who keep putting people in prison for no reason, for no good law enforcement reason. And then when they get out and it's shown that they're innocent then the prosecutor, I mean, uh, then the public has to pay for the prosecutor's misgivings. The 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 public has to pay for the prosecutor's misconduct, and then you get a guy that, you know, he says, hey, well, now uh, we, the public of the city, have to pay this guy $100 million because he sued us for the way he was treated in prison. He sued for misconduct. He sued for all these things that happened, and you get a huge lawsuit. That's when the prosecutor's feet are going to be held to the fire like you know what if this prosecutor hadn't done the things that he did then we the people wouldn't be paying for his mistakes or, or not really mistakes but for his crimes actually
6: so it, it, you start adding up the dollar figures that you just mentioned they're considerable and then add to that the human misery of all the victims that are victimized by crime while the wrong person's locked up while the real offender's still yes. out there in the randall adams case David Harris, who actually killed a Dallas cop, committed more crimes, you know, in Germany when he was in the Army, in Dallas, in Orange County, California, eventually killed a person, ended up having to go to death row himself when he's the one who actually killed the cop in the first place. But they overlooked that because he was a juvenile and they thought uh, Randall was a the guy they could convict as an adult and get the death penalty. And he was Randall was 72 hours from execution when the Supreme Court stepped in. So you're you're quite right. I mean this is a national um challenge that we have. We gotta keep the pressure on.
1: Absolutely. And we have a uh we have a caller on the on the line, Professor Huff. Uh we have the truth on the line. Uh you have a question or comment?
7: Yeah. I wanted to wait until after you get your next guest on and I'm really enjoying uh Dr Huff and what he's talking about is really really good knowledge but i want to give the other people a chance and i'll come on after your next guest
1: okay we will hold you in the queue thank you very much for your consideration
3: Mm -hmm. uh dr huff you're more you're more than welcome to hang around uh with us as we get ready to bring on uh donald connery um and uh and and you could share in on that conversation do you have a few more minutes to share with us
6: i'd be glad to and you just let me know when uh when you need me to depart. (laughs) (laughs) All
3: right. Okay, so this is Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. This evening we're talking about miscarriage of justice, and we just had a a, a very good conversation with Dr. C. Ronald Huff. And next we're going to bring on Donald Donald Connery. And uh, uh, Mr. Connery, uh, as an author, independent journalist, and former foreign correspondent, but uh, several years ago, he uh, witnessed or uh, was made aware of a miscarriage of justice, and it made him change his uh, uh, his life's goals, so to speak. So, welcome to the program, Mr. Connery. How you doing?
8: Oh, I'm fine, thank you. I'm sitting in uh, Connecticut, Kent, Connecticut.
3: Awesome. So the the That's weather a long changed. way from where
8: you are. <laughs>
3: Just a but little we still bit.
8: have innocent people in prison, so it doesn't matter what state you're in that's,
3: that's right, right, that's right, and so mr connery uh Dr. Huff is still on the line and uh but we wanted to ha- bring you on and and uh because of the fact that you know when you got uh, exposed to the case of Peter Riley uh an eighteen year old and and I, I assume that was the case that that uh kind of changed things around and made you uh kind of get involved in helping to right the wrongful convictions. Tell us a little bit about Well, that. Well,
8: let me, let me say that we're talking about something that goes back, well, uh, decades now. That was 1973. If I have any uh, d- distinction or uniqueness in, in this whole world of uh, what I call the innocence movement or the exposure of wrongful convictions, it's probably because I'm the only uh, person or a, certainly a journalist who was a... a uh, a specialist in international affairs as a foreign correspondent for Time magazine and Life and working in what were known as police states, the -hmm. Soviet Union and various dictatorships around the world. And then I came home, uh, settled in Connecticut, and uh, within a couple of years we had a murder case. And uh, this 18-year-old boy, Peter Riley. Found his mother murdered, and within 24 hours, the state police had his forced him to confess, and he was convicted. And uh, it took a lot of effort to save him, uh, but he was exonerated pretty quickly because of the uproar. So that's how that's how I got a uh, a career change from uh, my uh, my specialty of uh, foreign policy into the world of criminal justice. Uh, and what i call the uh, criminally unjust criminal justice system so that's a, been a long story
1: and when we look at the justice system as we call it in america i mean you did uh international um investigative reporting uh you've been to other places you you you've looked at uh, you know what's going on around the world and and a lot of times you know we hear people say you'll hear it in the media you'll hear people make comments oh we have the best criminal justice system in the world but my contention is how do we call it that in the state that it's in i mean uh, we used to say we don't throw the baby out with the bath water but if the you know if the if the if the baby has passed away we need to go <laughs> ahead and bury him and say you know what the baby has passed away let's bury the baby let's empty the putrid bath water and let's start over and this time perhaps we can get it right because you you know it's it's such a fallacy that we as America as the American people, uh our our mass, um, you know, uh big media that we present to the world that oh the criminal justice system in America is great, it's it's perfect. You can't find anything better anywhere in the world. You know, we I, I looked at pictures of what they call, you know, ten best prisons in the world. And they had pictures of Norway where they give these men a it, it's a it's still a sense of dignity even though they are in prison to to be taken away from your family to have your your freedom taken away that is punishment enough in america we say well, well, actually, cramp-
8: I, let me let me interrupt you go, ahead, go if, ahead if i may i'm only the guest about i well, my first book was called the scandinavians There's about 500 pages on the uh, scandinavian countries i visited uh uh, prisons in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, Finland. Uh, yeah, it is a humane uh, way of uh, of dealing with uh, with the people. Those who are guilty. Uh, there may have been some innocent people, but in any event, um, it, there is a night and day difference uh, in in some attitudes about imprisoning people. This question about. Uh, let's say that most Americans, certainly everyone who hasn't had to run into the system, uh, may well feel that we have the best system in the world because, in fact, um, uh, so much of the world has truly brutal, uh, terrible, uh, corrupt um, law enforcement uh, systems. E- even in a country like uh, India where we lived, uh, you can expect uh, corruption up and down the whole system. So, And so you could say, that on the whole, the American justice system, the whole business of uh, of, uh, of protecting the public from crime and, and, and imprisoning uh, those who deserve punishment uh, may work well enough most of the time because an awful lot of people are committing crimes and they're guilty and they go to prison, except it's sort of really gotten out of hand so one way of thinking about it is that, yeah, if if the civilian airline system works well enough uh, most of the time because most airplanes uh, reach their destination and no one gets killed, but unfortunately um, one out of ten planes uh, crashes, well, then something is wrong and nobody would want to fly a plane so uh we have uh, a system that has been full of error and denial and the the prisons packed with people who have outrageous sentences that they, they don't deserve and a and a high percentage of people who are wrongly convicted and that's got to change and in fact it is slowly. Exactly.
1: That's what we have to change because your analogy of, you know, airline, we we wouldn't have anybody flying anywhere. If you say, well, one out of 10 planes, is coming down. Uh, No one would fly anywhere. Uh, People would just take, you know, mass transit on the ground and get to where they're to where they're going. Um, And so uh, Mr. Connery add
6: add something to that.
1: Go ahead, Professor. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Just to follow up on Mr. Connery's point, which is a very, very important point and as he knows when those planes crash on occasion or re- trains get derailed we have a massive investigation mm-hmm. yep the ntsb goes and investigates what happens when an innocent person gets sent to prison and we discover that they're they're innocent we don't tend to have anything like that we don't take so, it as seriously as we do these other tragedies but
8: we should as a matter as a matter of fact uh, the, the the um the 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 inspection of any airplane crash, especially any civilian airliner, is so immediate and so intense and so effective that it's far safer to fly than to drive your car to the airport. So it's possible to take even a extremely complicated system with millions of people flying in the air all the time and have a very, very low error rate. Now, when I, uh, excuse me for just ex- going on with this question of percentages, uh, when I uh, have listened to some previous broadcasts on this uh, network, um, I've heard the reference to there may be 40,000 uh, innocent people in prison. Well, I think that's less than half the, of the reality. Uh, there are 2.3 million people in prison. And, um uh, I think the error rate, the, those who are actually wrongly convicted, conservatively is at five percent. So even if we took a two million population prison, a five percent error rate is a hundred thousand, and it's actually more than that. Now there aren't any statistical uh, support. There is no statistical support for that figure, but I've been around the uh, this system long enough. And I've talked talking to just about everybody who's been at the forefront of wrongful convictions, to believe that most most of us uh, think it's in that area of five percent. I'd be interested in what Professor Huff uh, has to say to that.
6: Uh, Yeah, well, you know, back in the 80s, when um, I had an Israeli PhD student and we did uh, a study involving his dissertation. We so did, you first, did. We did the first um, survey to try to estimate, uh, not an exact estimate, but a survey of opinions of, of criminal justice officials and some public defenders. I won't go into all the details that take too long, but we came well, up. with it was with a,
8: a pioneering report. I remember that.
6: Well, well, thank you. And uh, uh, even back then, before people recognized, uh, you know, these DNA exonerations, and before it was in the news. When yeah. people were still pretty much in denial, that that study resulted in an estimate of half of one percent, which sounded to the public like well that must be pretty reassuring. So then I showed them the numbers. Even if the system were ninety nine and a half percent accurate, that meant six thousand people every year just in the felonies that were being wrongfully convicted. And
8: mm-hmm. it's a different
6: question to say how many are in prison, as you just said, it could be uh, you know tens of thousands. And so if we look at Sam Gross in my recent book, Sam Gross from Michigan Law School, who works on the National Exonerations Registry, he, yep. he says that he believes it's somewhere between 3 and 5%. And so if you look at that estimate, uh, as Sam says, there's probably at least 25,000 or so innocent people in prison. It may be as high as 50,000 as, as, or 100,000. No one really knows for sure, but we know that we keep making these errors. And going back to you know, the point that you made about plane crashes, the investigations that that occur, we learn every time we learn from those investigations, how to make it safer. We're not learning from these wrongful convictions because we don't do these massive investigations and we don't learn from our mistakes.
1: That's right. And they the, the, uh, prison complex, the industrial complex of the prison system does not want to, uh, you know, find out how to correct the errors. That is not what they want to do. And, and, uh, we uh we have the the truth we're gonna take her call now, um got her on the line. The truth you can go ahead with your question or your comment now,
7: yeah, I think uh i I agree with your guests tonight on the fact that um the reason why we investigate plane crashes and what have you to see why is the type of people that fly right. I, I said one time that isn't it is strange that we could have all these plane crashes, they kind of come in spurts and we get a lot of plane crashes, but the president's plane never crash.
6: <laughs> so
7: it tells me that, okay, it's about who we value and who we don't value, whether, whether or not we think it's important, and that's the way the prison system is. The people that's in prison don't have any value, so we don't worry about it. We do nothing about it. We We talk about what's wrong, but we don't do anything about it because... These are the outcasts of society. That's the way we view them. So something that's not that doesn't have any value, we don't usually investigate or try to find out, you know, what's wrong. And, and really, who cares? And, and I think for the most part, a lot of our society truly believes that if you're in prison, you did something to be there. And I think as long as we have that mindset that if you're in prison, you did something wrong, now, as a pastor, I, I, uh, I we had a service in Florence, Colorado, which is called the number one worst prison in the country. It's known as the Rock, as the, as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. And mm-hmm. we went to the maximum security. We had services there for five years. Now, what what alarmed me, I guess, was from what I had heard, you wouldn't expect anybody to say they're guilty of something. But many of those guys that were in that prison, I was surprised at how many came up to me and said, I deserve to be here or "or I did do something wrong. And there were few that said, I don't deserve to be here, I didn't do anything wrong. And so when I looked at how many people actually confessed to it, and they were in prison, and they didn't try to make you think they were this, uh, you know, honest, uh, uh, people of integrity. They didn't try to make you feel that way. And so, but I think we don't really care as a society. And it's kind of a selfish attitude that we have. And if, it's, if it's not in my family, if it's not in my house or whatever, then it's not that important. So why worry about it? And so we go on with our lives. I'm always alarmed at when the, when our media comes on and they report somebody who's been released from prison, uh, and they've been there 20, 30, 40 years. They they talk about it and tell you, you know, he's out of prison or whatever, and almost in the next breath, before that, before the story's barely done, they they go on to something else. It seems like nobody really cares. Well, he was in prison for 30 years. He lost 30 years of his life. How many family members died while he was there? Did his mom and dad die? Well, did he lose siblings while he was there? Nobody seems to care about the after aftermath of all this stuff. And so that's what you see every time. And I think you really don't understand how painful it is until you actually have, have it happen to you. And once it happens to you, then I think it's a whole different story. Because I'm telling you, I truly believed in the system. I raised my children to believe in the system. To If you do the right thing, if you're honest, you go to school, you get your education, and you uh, remain a good citizen and one of integrity and what have you, and you work hard, and you can have the American dream, it's all such a lie. And when it happened in our family... I could, I think, what do I say now? And when I stand before our church members, I think I used to could say, you can believe in it. But, but I still think I disagree with the fact that we have the best system just because other systems are 100% worse than ours. We're still in the bad group. That's like somebody uh, says, you know, I don't think I'm that bad. I only weigh 300 pounds. And, and so what makes you any better from the person who weighs 400. you got the same problems. And so the same thing applies here. It looks like it's very hard in this country for us to acknowledge we have a sucking system. That's really, it's just, it's dead, dead, dead. There's no life in it. There's no caring. There's nobody trying. I see people out here, a few people trying to make a difference. But the system is so large, it's going to take a lot of voices. Uh, people right. say
8: okay. what do can we I do can i comment on can i comment on that because uh i'm not going to i'm not going to um to say that anything you've said is not right uh it's simply that uh it it if if uh, if that's too much the focus um that that we we may despair when in fact uh and i've been uh, involved in this now for four decades i think what's been happening in the last 20 years And more recently, um, it should give us some reason to to believe that change can happen, and in fact, that change is happening. Now, yesterday, I was in Chicago at the uh, Northwestern Law School uh, at the Center on Wrongful Convictions um, Conviction Integrity Conference, and I've been to most of the uh, conferences at the center. Uh, for, for for years now, 15 or so years. And this was the most mind-blowing uh, uh, gathering because up there in the stage were a whole bunch of, of district attorneys from important cities, from Santa Clara, California, to Brooklyn, with Chicago in between, uh, talking about uh, what has only uh, happened in the last few years, which are the uh, those district attorney's offices which are now setting up special units to to look into uh, instances of apparent wrongful uh, imprisonment and wrongful convictions. And then at the end of the conference, I took a taxi back to O'Hare Airport with the star of the conference, uh, who was Kenneth uh, Thompson, uh, the, uh, the uh, newly elected district attorney of uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, where I grew up, by the way. And he has um, taken over... Uh, from a, a long-serving district attorney mr Hines, who Ooh. just overlooked any number of wrongful convictions and w- it, within only the last months less than a year kenneth thompson a, the, the, the first black district attorney in this uh, uh... in brooklyn uh... heading that major major office there have been ten exonerations mostly because he was cleaning up after a corrupt cop who had uh, forced false false confessions. In any event, not to go on and monopolize anything, the thing is that uh, more and more prosecutor officers are almost certainly going to have units looking into cases of apparent wrongful conviction. And this is the latest result latest wave of what you might call the innocence movement that began mostly when DNA came into the picture in the 1980s. So we now have the innocence projects and a great deal of focus and media attention to wrongful convictions. And I think that should give us some hope that the system can be improved faster than we may think.
7: Yeah, and and I agree that that we've made some changes, but when you think about how many people are still left in prison and are incarcerated, and I'm talking about the wrong, wrongfully convicted ones, uh, it's a very slow move to them. But to us, it's on the outside. We may think more or less that, you know, it is it is moving, but I think if if I'm in prison and somebody comes and says, you know, we're making really good progress, and I've been sitting here for 10, 15, 20 years, and I'm I'm innocent, but nobody cares enough to really dig into it 100% and say, wait a minute, let us see what we can do. I'm a believer that, uh, for the most part, that if we actually got everybody out of prison that was innocent, we have a lot of empty prisons. But if we get these crooked prosecutors... And corrupt judges and corrupt police officers that that are that are that are doing so much damage to our system. If they could be put in prison, we'd have to build new
8: ones. And so, there's it. a
7: lot of things I agree that there is change, but the change is extremely slow. When you think about how fast life is moving for people and all about. You're, so we're you're here right, of us, for a short it, time, and it so is surely. Too slow. It, it, Pardon me? It is
8: too slow. It's, it's absolutely too slow. So is the Yeah, and, that, and I think
7: that's what bothers me, is that it's so slow, because people are dying, and they're, and they, they're not living their lives, and we're only a lot of the short time here. And so well, even Our though rights. you're making some progress, it's surely not fast enough, and I think we could speed it up. I think we could well, do hold more. On,
8: hold on, hold on. Let, let, me, let me just say that I think uh, you're focusing on what's Uh, What is necessary for a a more massive movement to free the innocent? And it probably is a matter of of national leadership. We have an insufficient uh, attention from everyone from the White House to the Congress in in, in this issue. Now, one reason for this is that uh, we have 50 states, and they have their separate criminal justice systems, and some of them work better than others and it's a it's going to be a very very difficult thing to move faster and one right. of these days one of these days we'll have more leadership on the national level, and more public outrages more and more of these cases uh come to attention
7: i believe that, that I, I agree with that hundred percent that our leadership is really really almost non existent uh, and also, uh, even when they had the big, uh, big uh, riot in Ferguson, and somebody said, "Where are the leaders? Are we are lacking in leadership." And we don't have enough voices, enough people that's outraged by what's happening. But I think once we get that in place, I think we will see a a much faster movement if we have good, solid leadership and also plenty of people that's screaming from the mountaintop that there's got to be a change, this can't go on. I think if we get enough voices and enough leadership that we can really make a difference and it wouldn't take nearly as long.
8: Actually, we are getting slowly more uh, voices in Washington. Even some conservative uh, uh, congressmen and senators are recognizing I agree the, with that. the high cost of, of imprisonment mm-hmm. and, and the uh, draconian uh, sentences and the treatment of juveniles. And uh, honestly, twenty years ago, nobody, hardly anybody, was paying any attention to any of this. And now right. we have a lot more, a lot more attention than we ever did. Now, can we hear from Professor Huff on this?
6: Yes, I, I was going to say, I think that uh, another another optimistic note is that we see now even people like Rand Paul speaking out about yep. over-incarceration, and, and that's what you're referring to. And then we see on the California uh, ballot for this election coming up um, here in November, uh, we have uh, uh, a ballot issue that would greatly reduce the, over-incarceration over in California and concentrate more on serious violent crimes and not, uh, not over-incarcerate like California has been doing for so long. And so uh, I've said for many years, and we're beginning to see it happen, that we would eventually see a coming together of programmatic liberals and fiscal conservatives. And we're seeing I that believe that we just can't afford to keep pay, paying all this money. It costs $60,000 per prisoner in California. Uh, right, right. Uh, you know where that money largely comes from is the higher education budget. Because if you look at any state budget, you find that a, a lot of the expenditures are for public safety in one way or another, law enforcement, prisons, et cetera. And if you look at the budget, uh, a lot of things are, are nailed down. They're entitlements. You cannot, you don't have any degrees of freedom to mess with K through 12 education, really, because you have to have K through 12 education. You have welfare requirements that are mandated. But you start looking at state budgets, and, and, and where do they find these degrees of freedom? The higher education budget, because they, a lot of these legislators think that that's a luxury and that um, a lot of their constituents' kids don't go to college. And so they say, well, we'll protect K-12, but we'll cut the higher education budget. Well, what that does then, the kids that go to college are having higher and higher tuitions and, and fees that they're paying, and that's a barrier to entry for a lot of kids that don't have that money, and it disproportionately affects minorities. So yes, yes. we're robbing higher education and uh, a lot of these prevention programs in order to keep fueling uh, prison growth. In California, a lot of that was because uh, the, uh, the the union that represents the correctional officers and, and a lot of the peace officers uh, was getting more and more uh, guards hired because every time the prison population went up, they would hire more guards. So as I told my students, who's watching the public interest here? That may yes. be fine for the... Correctional Peace Officers Union, and it may be fine for the prison industrial complex that builds the prisons and, and supplies them with food and so forth. They're all making a profit, while the taxpayers are are the ones that are footing the bill. Yeah. Now, and,
7: now, now, man, you can, can I get you to speak to the fact that when we have the educational system set up in the prison, that you can go there and you can get your degree or whatever. I, I I I think what what is the problem there is that after they do that in the prison and they get their education or their degree, but when they get out, they never remove selling from the records. Therefore, no matter how much you educate yourself in prison, when you get out, it does you no good.
6: Well, first of all, you know a lot of those programs have been cut back, and it's right. not as easy to get a college degree in prison as it used to be. I know people who started those programs back in Ohio, and um, I thought a lot of them were really very progressive, uh, as along with a lot of other programs, but they've been cut back through budget cuts. Um, And the other thing is that uh, I always tell my students, you can become an ex-con, but the challenge is, how do you become an ex-ex-con? And people always say, you know, well, how do you get rid of that stigma? So even if you're wrongfully convicted and you're later exonerated, you go out to to look for a job. People say, "Were you ever arrested for a crime?" Which is not the question they should ask. Or even, right. they, you know, were you ever convicted of a crime? And they have to say yes, but right. they say, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't guilty. Well, a lot of employers still aren't going to hire you. And so, you know, how do you become an ex-ex-con? And uh, people say, "Well, you know, unemployment causes crime." Well, guess what? Crime also causes unemployment. And yeah. Even, yeah. even if they believe you committed a crime, they don't want to employ you. No, no they don't and so and so what and so what do the people who get out of prison what do they do?
7: I think that's why we have so many repeat- uh repeat offenders that's going back because when they get out, they're trying their best to make a life for themselves, but they find out whatever they they a trade in, if, they done, if they took a trade in prison or, or got some kind of degree or whatever, when they get out, it's no good to them anyway. So is that not wasted money for us to do that in the prison if they're going to come out and still not be able to be
6: employed? Well, and people don't pay attention to the overall economy. They talk about the economy as if it's all the legal economy. It's right. there's, a, there's the illegal economy So for a lot of people Especially uh, uh, people who don't have uh, uh, Good educational backgrounds And can't find jobs easily They can sell drugs They can find other ways to make money In the illeg- illegitimate economy So it competes with the legal economy And so to me Our challenge as a, as the citizens Of the United States Is to provide a legitimate economy That can employ everybody That wants to get a job but we don't. We're yeah. far from that.
7: We're far from that. Right. And I think I think that's probably some of the biggest problem that we've got uh, for for repeat offenders because they end up re- uh, resorting back to the thing that took them there in the first place because they don't know any other way in which to survive. And so if I can't survive, then I have to go back to what I used to do. But if you're gonna if you're gonna educate them, at least let them have a, have an open door somewhere when they enter back into the economy. Uh, but I just want to say this too real quickly and then I'm going to I'm going to get off of here um you know prison I I met with a group of um group of uh, chaplains that came down to Denver for the for the for the uh, for the chaplain convention that was here and I was surprised when we had a meeting with them that they said to me that prison does not rehabilitate anybody he said in fact prison uh most people don't survive prison and so, for us to say we are rehabilitating them, uh, the fact is that we that we're really not, because to rehabilitate them is to restore whatever that was good in this person, or or or, or, or uh, 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 and to restore their reputation, as uh, as thought. But when when I talked to them, he said, "Well, it's just not. It, it doesn't work." He said, "Prison is not rehabilitation." It is it is punishment and abuse, and so how how do we somehow change that back to when it really started when prison started many many years ago? It people were rehabilitated. Now people are 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 being uh, actually abused in the prison system by the guards and what have you who are there. How do we get somehow get our voice in there to say okay? It's not your job to abuse me. If I did something wrong and I'm, I'm, I've been sent to prison, my, my my, freedom has been taken away, which is punishment in itself. So then why, are we, why do we have the abuse that we have going on in the prison with the guards or what have you? And the people are suffering in prison after they get there. I have a son who was wrongly convicted. He went there. His back is destroyed. He was there for seven years. And when he got out and went to a chiropractor, the chiropractor said, "I've never seen a back structure destroyed like this." And so, so when I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, why can't we have at least uh, a decent bed or uh, something that these people really feel like they have something to hold on to? So though, though uh, Dr. Samuel is saying, uh, just keep hope. Well, you don't have to give me something. I can look forward to something. But if you keep tearing me down every time I try to get up or somebody's abusing me, I don't get better from abuse. I, I'm, I'm eventually destroyed if, it, if, it's not, if somebody doesn't stop it.
6: Well, massive incarceration has overwhelmed the resources that we have. And back when I worked in the maximum security institution as director of social work, I had eight social workers working for me and 1,500 people locked up. Wow. So you can only do so much and we did have family therapy on visiting day and we did have programs. We at the place I worked we used to pioneer some things like music therapy and pet therapy. And there were people who were rehabilitated. But the more we've gotten into massive incarceration, the more the resources right. have been overwhelmed by the numbers and we end up warehousing people. Right. Well, you know it's good talking time. to you. I I I, I hope that we do see something
7: that just cause will continue to work for the cause that they're working for, and that is that we might get the wrongly convicted out and that we will at least respect people as human beings regardless of what crime that they may commit and, and regardless of how gross it may be, is that they're still human beings and to abuse anybody. Is is just an injustice all around, and so I I hope we keep fighting for that. And it's so good to talk to both of you guys tonight, and and to and to know that you care, it comes across that you really care, and I can have I have an appreciation for that.
6: Thank
1: you. Mm-hmm.
8: Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, is- go ahead, Mr. Collins I don't know whether. I don't know whether I should respond to questions or or to go ahead and and say what's on my mind. Uh the 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 thing is you you could apply to any number of uh, situations including the uh, the poverty in this country and uh, to uh, and racism and and uh, the the failures of our education system. Uh most of the population is much too satisfied with things as they are. But again, uh, the, the change is underway. Uh, but, uh, I, if, in terms of you know, back to the main theme of of the we, if we have a prison system which is, and now overwhelmingly uh, huge and unnecessarily uh, uh, huge in terms of the number of people incarcerated, uh, uh, and it's out of uh, you know it's almost too much to fix, unless we get uh, in, in, you know into substantial reforms. The, the, the fact still is that uh, there is more attention being paid now than ever before to the very problems uh, that we're discussing, and it's becoming uh, more of a uh, political issue. And if there are to be so, uh, solutions, it's going to have to be done by pe- people who get into elected offices at, at national and state levels and work to make a change. Um one uh, one reason for optimism is that the uh, the emphasis that has been given to exonerations over the past uh, 10 and uh, 15 and 20 years has kind of fueled uh, a a great deal of interest in the subject now one of one of the uh, key figures at the conference in uh, Chicago that I attended yesterday was was the uh, Wisconsin Law School professor uh Keith Finley, he currently the president of the Innocence Network, uh, which is an affiliation of more than 60 innocence projects in the U.S. and Canada, United Kingdom, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands, France, Italy, South Africa. I mean, it, it, this thing began in the United States, and it now has spread, has spread to even to the countries which have nothing like our problems of mass incarceration. And uh, and too many uh, wrongly convicted, so that the very existence of the innocence movement uh, is is a uh, a sign of, of of change. Now, one thing that Professor Finley pointed out yesterday is that the more that the prosecutors, who I've I've always felt these these are the kind of the gatekeepers of the system, who who goes to prison or who ultimately will go through the process the prosecutors are the gatekeepers, and they have maintained over, you know, forever the idea that, oh, we, we don't make mistakes or the, everybody goes to prison is guilty, and this is changing. Now, if prosecutors have a new ethic and a new paradigm, a willingness to concede that mistakes are made and understanding why they're made, false confessions, et cetera, and if they set up it more and more, prosecutor officers actually pay attention to getting people out of prison who don't belong there, well, it will be a, a, a sea change. Because, um, uh, to conclude, uh, even when a state, for example, has an innocence project and a number of people working to free particular numbers of, of, of people they've identified as innocent in prison, they have to spend years often trying to put a case together to persuade the court systems and the prosecutors uh... that this person deserves exoneration but if the prosecutors themselves are willing to take on cases that are brought to them that are legitimate well they have the police histories they have the records they can move they have power and i'm, I'm honestly uh... uh... encouraging everyone listening to take a look for example g- google the very words Conviction Integrity Units, and see what's happening. Uh, This began in Dallas uh, uh, County, Texas, uh, in 2007, under a black new district attorney, Craig Watkins. And he has set the pace for something which is coming. And I find it, you know, hopeful
1: Absolutely. And that's a very um, well point that you make. I wanted to, um, you know, kind of shift the the conversation. First, uh, to continue with the conversation, there in St. Louis, uh, one of our research team just sent me an article that says St. Louis City will no longer require job applicants to disclose felony convictions. This came out October 14th of this year. Mayor Francis Slay announced that St. Louis would no longer require applicants for city jobs to disclose felony convictions. Millions of Americans have been convicted of felonies. Many of them have paid their debt to society and are willing to earn a second chance. Some jobs are uh, subject to regulations and the city, the city is legally required to do background checks, such as at the airport or police department. But that uh, kind of speaks to the fact that, hey, there are uh, some cities that are saying, hey, you know, we we have to shift the paradigm to deal with, the fact of what's going on with those who are incarcerated. We cannot just, you know, throw people away. They have to be reintegrated back into society. So that kind of yep. speaks to your point that there is, um, you know, more attention being brought to to what's going on. And I, I, I want to ask a, a question. Uh, we, um, you know, want to make sure that attention is, is kept on the IRP-6 case, which is our flagship case here at a Just Cause, and the thing that has happened there, um the the fact that they have been wrongly incarcerated for uh you know going into debt as as small businessmen and how the system uh just works against you uh once you are brought uh, under indictment. Uh, we did give you guys a, a little bit of background on them and, and understand that you've checked into it and wanted to get your thoughts on um, how the system is 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 handling uh, that case. And uh, Professor Huff, uh, we'll, we'll go to you first about uh, what your thoughts are on what you've learned about the case. I mean, the things that, uh, that really stand out are there's a Fifth Amendment violation against self-incrimination. There was a, a disallowed expert witness testimony by the judge, well, not disallowed, but the judge refused to allow an expert witness to testify during the case. And then there was a uh, speedy trial violation that, um, you know, the even the appellate court said, yeah, it was a constitutional violation, but you got to kind of look at other prongs of, of uh, what happened. What what are your thoughts there, Professor Huff?
6: Well, first I would say by a disclaimer, I don't claim to be an expert on the case itself, but from what I've read about the case... <clears throat> The fundamental question I had is why it ended up in the criminal justice system to begin with. Um, Absolutely. Even if the allegations were correct, it belonged in the civil system, not in the criminal system. Uh, and and uh, so there's a, there's an example here of overreach by the prosecutors. Uh, I believe, in my opinion, uh, I've seen that happen here locally. <coughs> we had a case here where uh, 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 an individual who is a prominent CEO of a corporation. Uh, a big benefactor of, of the university where I teach, University of California Irvine, he was charged uh, with back uh, back-dating, um, uh stock, stock options for people in his corporation. And when I heard about this charge, I'm like, N- I can't believe that he would ever do that. Well, uh, it turned out that the prosecutor behaved so unethically that the federal judge threw out the charges and lectured the prosecutor on ethical behavior. Uh, And this judge, Carmack Carney is his name, uh, is known to be an independent thinker. He does the right thing no matter what anybody thinks. He just absolutely threw out the entire case because in that case the prosecutors had acted unprofessionally and unethically in what they did behind the scenes. He became aware of it, and he was quite irate. So I think we see overreach, overcharging, and we see unethical behavior by some of these prosecutors that needs to be sanctioned uh, much more than it is. In that case that uh, you're referring to, uh, I just don't even think it belongs in the criminal justice system to begin with. And uh, certainly they shouldn't be two years languishing in prison uh, for this this allegation when, in fact, a lot of the facts that I know about the case suggest that they should not have been in, in prison. They were traveling as businessmen, respected businessmen, traveling even abroad. Uh, yes. and never did, never were an escape risk. And so why they couldn't be out on bail, or at the very least handled through some type of electronic monitoring or something, why they have to be in prison, I have no idea.
1: That's Absolutely. Mr. Absolutely. Mr. Conner- and Mr. Connery, yeah. before we go to you uh, to get your take on it, um, you know, uh, Professor, you make a very astute <laughs> uh, observation. observation there. Yep. You said that you don't, you don't even know how this got to the criminal justice. Well, the FBI actually made a statement to one of the staffing companies that uh IRP solutions the company that uh IRP 6 are the executives of they made a statement to one of the companies when they reached out to the FBI and said said look you have debt with this company you need to take this up civilly there's nothing the FBI can do for you so the the question then is how does the FBI on one hand say yeah, this is a civil issue. You need to take it up civilly. It's a debt collection case, and the FBI does not get into those type of matters. And then on the other hand, the FBI, uh, another, you know, that was the Denver office of the FBI, the Colorado Springs office of the FBI, continue to, uh, you know, chase down a unicorn and and come up with some kind of way to get an indictment and with all the, the activity that went on, you know, uh, leaking sealed court documents, going about uh, harassing family members, uh, subpoenaing church records uh, of the IRP six executives of the church that they all uh, went to. All the things that happened there and the bottom line, this never should have made it to to, to federal court. How they got an indictment. Uh, well, you know, say the federal government can indict a ham sandwich, so so that's kind of a, a, a no brainer. It's but
3: called unethical yeah, prosecution. Exactly. Well, this is the where you this
6: is where you you re, this requires judicial leadership. I like the judge I mentioned here, Carmack Carney, who uh, who had the courage to throw this out of court. We need to have judges that don't just rubber stamp things, but take a careful mm-hmm. look at things and stand up for for principles and for justice and for fairness and. uh without saying, you know, that, that any particular judge is at fault in this case, I just make a general observation that we found in our research that there's too many people engaging in tunnel vision from the very first investigation all the way through the court system, rubber stamping things when they should be asking hard questions about the evidence.
1: Absolutely. Um Mr Connery you you want to go ahead and comment? <coughs>
8: Well, I'm 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 just sitting here feeling grateful that you asked Professor Huff to address this first because I think he's much better qualified as an academic and a person with long history in a variety of criminal justice uh, or or just uh, the legal system. Um, You're
6: being too modest. <laughs> uh,
8: yeah, except that my focus has been on these uh, uh, major crime cases that have led. Uh, to, uh, to, you know, murder cases and so on, uh, uh, which have led to the more spectacular exonerations, like the Central Park Five and so on. Right. As I read this material about this particular case, I'm, I have to confess my mind began to swim. It's like uh, mm-hmm. reading uh, reading the worst kind of murder investigation that goes off the rails, and the actual wow. perpetrators. Uh, uh, have, have been let free because of the, of the blind focus on the most convenient suspect, and the whole system starts breaking down at the beginning with the police, and then the prosecutors use their power to um, to, to bring a, a man to trial uh, or a woman, and and ultimately get a conviction with a with a judge who's sleeping through the whole thing and defense attorneys who aren't doing their job and you know uh, for all these years i've been involved in these things i'm still outraged and i'm I, and i'm you know the mind boggles at some of the stuff that goes on uh, as i got into the details i was thinking i was i'm going to have to spend a week understanding uh, the abuse of prosecutorial power here uh, if any case that i've come across lately of this nature uh, illustrates uh, how uh, the extraordinary power that prosecutors at all levels have. Uh, This certainly illustrates it. A a district attorney uh, is is more powerful in many ways, many, many ways than the president of the United States. And if he messes up and and behaves like a criminal himself by concealing evidence or overusing his power, he almost will never have to uh, pay any punishment. In fact, he may be rewarded down the road by being elected attorney general or something.
6: You read and this was, case it reminds me of a fantasy like Alice in Wonderland except it's not a fantasy and people's lives are being ruined.
8: Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. And, this, and this, you know, was, uh, Go ahead Mr. Let,
8: let me just say that that uh, again I'm I'm giving you a very personal reaction here because I'm I've been reading uh, my friend uh, Brian Stevenson of the uh uh Justice uh, uh, Initiative in in uh, uh, Alabama Montgomery and his his latest book. A brilliant uh, it man. Is, it is, is Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. And he describes at great length a case I'm extremely familiar with Walter McMillian uh, of uh, Monroe County uh, in Alabama, who uh, was put on death row even before uh, he was brought to trial, and then, of course, was convicted. And at that point, uh, upon conviction, having uh, bent every rule possible, to win the conviction they they then bent every rule possible to obstruct uh, his exoneration and i'm reading this vivid account of how that all played out from Brian stevenson's perspective as the uh, heroic district attorney and it it's it's like this this is the worst um uh, case example of the system just gone off the rails totally and it, uh, 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 so, so the case we're talking about uh, seems about seems to be as bad in a different way, and that's about, that's about all I can say on it.
3: And, and you know, uh, Mr. Connery as well, and uh, Professor Huff. You know, you you both make excellent observations in this case. And you know, when you look at, and I have to reflect back on on something that uh, that uh, Professor Huff said uh, with regard to a case like this, as well as others you need that judicial leadership. And in this situation, you had uh a federal uh federal judge Christine Arguello was not leading anything and and clip often refers to it as, you know, being a referee. And in this situation, uh this this particular judge was anything except anything but a referee. And and it was as if, you know, sort of orchestrating, you know, sometimes you hear the analogy of herding cats and, you know, And and she was the one that was kind of pushing everything into a into a certain direction, uh, even down to the point of admonishing the uh, the IRP six guys when witnesses were not there. But it wasn't at their own doing because the witnesses were not there. It's because the prosecution uh, uh, orchestrated a a situation where by they ended their case a week and a half early. And when you have witnesses coming in from out of town, you know uh, traveling. How is a judge going to sit there and once, you know, uh, one comment after another? I mean, she's just hammering the guys, saying, you better get your witnesses here. We're not going to continue. Uh, and if you don't have a witness on the stand, I'm going to consider your case as as, uh, as being arrested. I mean, have you ever seen anything like that, uh, Professor Huff? Well, <clears throat>
6: I've seen too much of it. Um... And uh, leadership is is in short supply. As I mentioned, we need it. Look at what, look at what's happened in Dallas since uh, Craig Watkins took over. the <laughs> We talk about the conviction integrity unit, and that's now becoming, as uh, Mr. Connery pointed out, it's mushrooming. We're seeing more and more of these units. That mm-hmm. was the result of Craig Watkins' leadership. He
2: right.
6: he provided the leadership to do it, and we just don't see enough of this leadership that we need at the judicial level. Again, we need to see judicial leadership. We we often find people rubber stamping, um, you know, what the police and prosecutors have said, but they need to take a hard look at this and not just rubber stamp it. <clears throat> so uh, as it goes up the line, we see too much of this endorsement and rubber stamping going on. What, what we called in my first book I did with my former Israeli student, we called it the ratification of error. And so we just keep ratifying these errors instead of taking a hard look at it. And until we see this kind of leadership develop, um, we're going to keep rubber stamping errors at the lower levels,
1: right? And then you look at w- even when this was sent up to the higher level, because one of the one of the main problems in the IRP six case is that there was a sidebar called um, during this this uh, witness um, debacle uh, where never the witness
6: showed up in the transcript,
1: right? And it it never showed up in the transcript, and and uh, the Honorable Judge H. Lee Serrigan he said that uh you know the the fact that the judge is is the judge is uh, basically allowing her court reporter to paraphrase what he's saying allowing her court reporter to get away with not capturing something that the judge said during the proceedings. Now, it's one thing. I mean, the judge tried to use these excuses. Well, maybe my court reporter didn't have her headphones on. Maybe uh, someone hope. wasn't speaking close enough to the microphone. Maybe they weren't speaking clear enough. But we are not talking about testimony of the and, of a witness. or none, the of the the whole, none of that. None of
3: that. I mean, water. None,
1: none of that whole water. But we are not even talking about we're not talking about the words of a witness, the words of any of the defendants. We're talking about what the judge said is not in the transcript. So you're telling me she's admonishing people the, the entire trial. She's telling witnesses when they're talking, make sure you're close enough to the mic. The court reporter has to record everything you say. But then you 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 expect for us to believe, Judge Arguello, that you're not close enough to the microphone that the court reporter then pick up what you had to
6: say? That's it not is- the kind of transparency that we should insist on.
1: That definitely, definitely is not. It is. It is absolutely ridiculous for, and and the thing that that really, you really have to have a
6: basis for appeal that's a record. And if you don't have a record, you have it, it. It obviously automatically cripples your basis for any appeal.
1: Yep. Yes. And and you would think that the appellate court would say, "Hey, lower court, circuit court, you don't have the record." And and it's not just any piece of the record, it's not just saying, Okay, you started the proceedings at nine o'clock in the morning. This is where you have six defendants saying our fifth amendment violation uh I mean our fifth amendment constitutional right has been violated and the violation does not exist in the transcript. How then does the appellate court say, Well we affirm what the judge did when it is not even in the transcript? What happened? It, it 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 is it is so beyond uh just 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 belief just just anything that you could fathom going on and what is
3: supposed and to. And you be. know, Cliff, on, on three occasions the IRP six requested that transcript. Yes, three occasions, and each case in each situation the story tended to change, and it got down to the to the last request where Judge Whale pretty much just said, "Well, you know." Uh, how, how how many pages are we talking about? And, you know, for the whole day, it was like 200 pages or whatever. But the, and the fact is that sidebar was still not delivered. And she makes a comment on the record that, well, you can't use the un, unedited version for anything anyway. And, and you know, it, it's one of those things that, uh, like you said, uh, uh, Professor Huff, it, it's that's not the type of leadership we need. We need to I mean, the judge should be ensuring that that people receive a fair trial. I mean, unless, you, unless you're unless you bucking for the, the the title of the hanging judge or something. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Well, and, and as uh,
6: retired Judge Sorokin uh, pointed out when he analyzed the case, you know, when you look at this logically, um, they're basically just saying that they there there was no transcript that included that, and so therefore, you know, too bad, you can't get it.
3: Well, we'd like to say thank you to uh, Mr. Connery as well as Professor Huff, joining us and uh, taking a significant portion of your evening uh, to spend with us. And uh, we'd like to invite our listeners to go out to a-justcause.com uh, a-justcause.com and uh, get more information about it, Just Cause. And then go out to ajcradio.com to hear our title program. And then, uh, Cliff, uh, who do we have there?
1: Well, we want to just say to you, uh, Mr. Huff, thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it. My uh, pleasure. We are into- our show. So we will definitely invite you to come on another time and uh you have a good night, sir, and uh thank you again to uh, Mr. Conway for joining us as well. Uh on the line we're gonna take one more talk before we end the show. We have the truth back on uh wants to make a comment. Go ahead, Truth, you're live.
7: Yeah, I was just thinking uh, uh one one of the guests were talking about uh the cutting back of the budget that has happened and when I looked at this article uh, in Texas, they had spent $750,000 on keeping some pigs cool while inmates died in the prison of, the, uh, uh, of temperature degrees of 120 degrees inside the prison. So $750,000, uh, they had turned the air conditioning on in the prison. That those inmates would not have died while you are cooling uh, some pigs outside. So how much more is the, is, the, is the money in the budget being wasted for useless things where it should be used for what is uh, what is given for. So I had a problem with that.
1: That's all I have to say. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Thank you for your comment. That that definitely is a problem. I mean, when pigs become more uh, valuable than humans, like that, that is, that is totally. And so wraps up another uh, episode, if you want to call it that, of AJC Radio Coast to Coast. We want to say thank you to all of our uh, call-ins. Um, You know, everybody who called in with questions and comments will say thank you to our our guests, Mr. Donald Connery and Professor Ronald Huff. We appreciate you guys uh, spending a good part of your uh, evening with us. Uh, We also want to say thank you to our production team, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson of K&D Productions. Helping out ill-skilled girl in the control room to make sure that you hear what it is we have to say. To our production support team, they give us an update and accurate information most of the time. I wish you guys would have found that hall garden for me. Uh, Also, to the truth, we know you're out there. We appreciate
4: it. And I want to say thank you to Olivia and Miss Barbara for your work behind the scenes, keeping everything flowing for us smoothly. We appreciate it. We love you guys.
3: Join us each Tuesday and Thursday right here on a Just Cause Coast to Coast from 8 to 10 p.m. And uh, If uh, you like to get a lot of good information about things that are going on in the judicial system, this is the place where you're going to get that information, and uh, tonight is a good example of that. You can catch us each Sunday morning at 10:30 a.m. Eastern Time on Progressive Radio Network. and get there by going to PRN.fm. Keep our brothers in prayer. Keep the IRP6 in prayer. That's David Banks, Dave Apollo Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Beatrice Harper, Garrett Walker. Also, we ask you to just uh, go out and uh, find out more information about them uh, at Free the IRP6. Free the IRP6.org. Do we have a, a request out there for some of the former uh, jurors?
1: That's right. For any jurors out there who are listening, we know that if you're hearing this information that's uh, going on on this show, that you got to have some questions about you what's know, going on in that courtroom that the judge did not allow you to hear some of her um, instructions that she gave, some of the things that she told you post-trial you want the information that we have, we are more than willing to give it to you. Reach out to us. Call us at 855-529-4252. Again, 855 529 Or send us an email at contact at
3: 8 You know, I like something that uh, Professor Huff said as far as, you know, we need some judicial leadership out there. We need some people who uh, are men of integrity. And I think all of us on, on the discussion tonight talked a little bit about D.A. Watkins in uh, Dallas County. And uh, Professor Huff was talking about those who don't have integrity. And, you know, well, you know, what do you get? And, and so uh, this is going to be a plug for Sydney Powell. You get the Sydney Powell book entitled License to Lie," And right. so you end up with a bunch of people who they have this immunity, this blanket immunity to just do whatever they want to do, but the tide is shifting. Yep. Cliff.
1: Yep, just want to say thank you to everybody and join us again next week. On AJC Radio, where we bring you education, information, and
3: awareness,
1: awareness about the <laughs> judicial injustice.
3: Hey, I'm Sam Thurman, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and our special contributing analyst, Lamont Banks. Join us next time. Good night, America. Good night.
4: Good night.